Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Sharing my outlook on the food world with you. This show is all about eating and entertaining and pretty much anything about food, drink, dining, feeding that is tasty and innovative, intelligent, and delicious. And so I am grateful that you've tuned in, and I look forward to sharing the table with you. We celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world, and I dish on food and wine and cocktails with cookbook authors and artisans and experts. And I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. You'll find podcasts of shows you might have missed at iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And I hope you'll become a friend and a fan and follow my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. If you're hungry for juicy conversation, well, then coming up, you won't want to miss Bart Van Olfen. He is arguably the world's most passionate, sustainable fishing advocate and an overall lover of fish. And he's shining a light on the superstar potential of tinned fish. Yes, everything in a can and how delicious it can be. Also coming up, David Leet is here of Leet's Culinaria, our resident blog expert. And yes, if you learned or mastered bread baking during the COVID quarantine, well, we're perfecting that bread goodness with more delicious recipes. So please stay tuned. I do hope that you are healthy and well and safe as you listen to this show. It feels a bit strange to conduct business as usual when life is a bit scary and uncertain at the moment. Um, And I know so many hearts, mine included, are hurting very badly. I don't know that I have the right words to express my thoughts, but I do want to say this. To all of those that are hurting, especially those in the black community, I stand with you. I support your right to be seen and heard. I don't pretend to fully understand or even speculate what you're going through, the injustice that you may face daily. But this radio show is about living your best life and finding joy in food and celebration and family and friends and gatherings because everything in my life is centered around food. And so I believe that the show must go on. So I'm sharing my passion with you this weekend to hopefully bring a bit of joy and reprise from a heavy, a heavy hearted time rather, um, and rather selfishly too, because it gives me some purpose and some hope. As a new mom, I do hope we can show our children a better country than what we are experiencing right now. And with that said, it is time to start the culinary conversation. So can we talk ribs for a minute, please? Because summer is about to start and you can be a rib master. When the warm weather rolls in, if you were to peek into my barbecue, many weekends are a rib fest at my house. So let's fire up the grill. The secret to mastering ribs is really in the preparation and the flavor infusion. So, 
sit back and listen here because I'm going to make you a rib king or queen. It all starts with your preferred style of ribs. So I'm a baby back rib lover. I like tender, fall off the bone meat and the riblets just large enough to hold on to and gnaw on. If you like Flintstone style ribs, well then consider the meatier St. Louis cut or you could always go for beef ribs if you really want a hearty chew. For my recipes though, when it comes to pork ribs... You have to choose between baby backs or spare ribs, also called the St. Louis, and then follow these three simple steps. I say season, roast, and grill. So let me go back a moment. Baby back ribs come from the backside of the pig near the loin, and they do tend to be more tender than most other slabs. They also require less cooking and they absorb flavor really well. Now, spare ribs come from the belly of the hog, where bacon comes from, so we know, of course, it's going to be delicious. They are larger in size and very meaty, but they're somewhat less tender than loin back ribs, and so they take a little more TLC. So I start, no matter what you choose, with a freshly rinsed rack of ribs. I take it out of the package, I rinse it off, and I paper towel pat it dry. If you turn the ribs over, the shiny surface on the underside is a membrane that is attached to the bones. And if you bought your ribs in a package, uh, then I would tell you pretty much 100% guaranteed that membrane is there. It exists. Now, if you bought it from a specialty butcher, the butcher might not have removed it, uh, but you'll need to check it. I'll tell you why. When you remove that membrane, you will create such added tenderness that if you haven't mastered ribs the way you want them, this is a quick fix to perfection. So let me teach you how to remove the membrane because it is easily done. Grab a paper towel because that membrane, that skin is very slippery and work from the most narrow end of the rack. So choose the narrow side of the rack of ribs and take a paring knife and lift the end of the membrane from the meat. You'll use the knife just to sort of poke at it and pick up a corner. Then you use the paper towel to grip the membrane and you pull across the rack to remove it. And that membrane or skin usually comes off in one large piece. Now, this is going to make for amazing tenderness and it is a great chef's trick. It's also a great dinner party trick to show off to everybody because it makes you a culinary hero. Now, once you've removed the membrane... I like to season and generously, especially with a dry rub, because I think you can create fabulous flavor and your own sort of flavor profile preference here. So a good rub will permeate best if it's left on the ribs for 24 hours before cooking, but a minimum of four hours, I say, will do if you're running behind on time. And I like a well-balanced rub that combines salt and spice and a touch of sweetness. Perfect for pork, of course. Now, if there's too much sugar, the ribs will burn when you go to roast or grill. And so be cautious of your ratios. For a standard dry rub, I combine chili powder, brown sugar, kosher salt, 
and freshly ground pepper. Those are my basic four, my go-to. And then I add smoked paprika, cumin, garlic powder, cayenne, even dried herbs if you like, and I make it my own. And so you can too. Now, if you'd like to consider a wet marinade instead, like a combination of bourbon, brown sugar, and soy sauce, that's a great go-to. I prefer the dry rub method to impart flavor, and I use liquid during cooking for moisture. So, the grill masters, the masters of barbecue are going to shiver right now. Prepare yourself, because I'm about to say oven. Yes, if you happen to love totally tender, wonderful ribs, I believe that they are roasted in the oven first before they go on the grill to finish. Now, if you are a smoke master, total uh, other rules, I should say, apply here. But I do roast low and slow before I go to the grill. And I will say, it does get the ribs ready in advance sooner because you can dry rub, leave them in the fridge overnight, pull them out. And your favorite barbecue sauce is really the best glaze here. And it should be according to your palate. I like smoky and sweet. And I'll brush the ribs generously with the barbecue sauce and then finish them on the grill. Uh, You want to take them out of the fridge at least a half an hour or so before grilling, preferably an hour. And I bring my barbecue sauce to warm before I brush them. And about 10 minutes or so on the grill, turning frequently until they're lacquered. I serve them with extra sauce for dipping. Oh, and then you should enjoy the praise, right? Because you just made great ribs. Now, if you're looking for recipe inspiration, go to chefjamie.com and you'll find my brown sugar bourbon glazed ribs and my homemade orange teriyaki glaze if you'd like to go that route. And those, by the way are marvelous ribs and this weekend could be a rib fest all right coming up there is lots more fabulous food in your radio tuna mackerel herring and more so tasty you won't believe it's from a can bart van olfen is joining us live to share the just released tinned fish cookbook and you're going to want to hear all about it chef jamie gwen in your radio be right back Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. There is delicious dialogue starting right here and right now. The New York Times, and I quote, says that Bart Van Olfen elevates canned tuna to the heights of deliciousness. Yes, scrumptious recipes for tuna and mackerel and herring and more, so tasty that you won't believe it came from a can, are chock full in a new cookbook that is getting great acclaim on Amazon and beyond. It's called The Tinned Fish 
cookbook, easy to make meals from ocean to plate, and sustainably canned but 100% delicious, Bart Van Olfen shares the beauty of how to open a can and make it truly delectable. Uh, What ingredient is delicious, sustainable, easy to store, adds protein and healthy fats? Uh, to almost any dish, well, it's tinned fish, of course. And whether you're a seafood lover or a home cook craving something new, this is really insightful culinary commentary. So listen up. He is a sustainable fishing advocate, shining a light on the superstar potential of tinned fish. He is arguably as well the world's most passionate fish lover, named the world's most sustainable seafood entrepreneur and an award-winning cookbook author for his previous title, uh, Fish Tales, Stories and Recipes from Sustainable Fisheries Around the World. Bart Van Olfen is live in Amsterdam, and he is here to dish. And I'm very glad to have you, Bart. Welcome. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Um, I think the book is fascinating and fabulous, Bart, and it's, (laughs) it's unique and different. And I, I really like that. And maybe because with the um, COVID quarantine, I've been thinking more outside the box and going through my pantry and encouraging my listeners to do so. But you've been doing that far longer than we all have. So uh, share a bit of backstory, please. Tell us about your passion for fish and where it began. This is my journey for fish. Yeah, yes. Well, I, um, I was graduated at the hotel school in The Hague here in the Netherlands in 96 and uh, with the belief that when I choose to start that education that I um, uh, could become like a proper chef but the the moment I I was graduated I realized that I maybe could manage a restaurant but I didn't feel really comfortable um, cooking um, as a chef in a restaurant so that made me decide and that was already a dream for many years to take the train to Paris and to work uh, for some three-star Michelin-rated restaurants. There, every morning, starting at 8, 9, 9 a.m., the fish uh, supplier came in. And actually, what he, he supplied not just product. He had a fantastic story with it. So he was explaining um, from what family the fish was, was coming from and, and when it was caught, and that maybe tomorrow, because of the bad weather, there wouldn't be any fish available. And actually, that was the moment that I realized that Wild fish is, is maybe the only product we, we eat, we capture it out of the wild. So it, it gives beautiful stories. And um, so it's, it's, there, there I realized seafood is, is a product or is, a, is, is something you eat with a great story. And, and mm-hmm. there my passion for seafood started. Um, it's also during that time that I realized, even in a three-star Michelin restaurant, that there are so many different species with so many different textures, flavors, um, and, and just in a few steps, only in a few steps, you, you can create, like, so many amazing meals. Cooking fish is not difficult at all. True. And uh, so that's where, where I started. I ended up uh, back in Amsterdam, started my first fishmonger store. But that, that's where, where, where yeah, where and the love for seafood started. Yes, and it shines through in this book, I will tell you, and in all that you do. But then, I think from reading your story you realize that the world of fish was even wider when you realize the value of 
tinned fish. And I think that had a lot to do with your consideration of uh, the environment, right? And sustainability. So tinned fish yeah. has, a, has a history with you and a, and a rich history in and of itself. Yeah, I think from two ways. In the first, say, because I, uh, in the first place, I was visiting fisheries around the globe. I was living, cooking, fishing with all these amazing sustainable fishing communities. And I often uh, noticed that much of the fish they caught ended up in a can. Hmm. And that's also what, what most of the people don't realize, that a can of tuna on, on, on the supermarket shelves is the same species as the tuna you'll be served in a sushi restaurant, raw and as a sashimi. It's, it's just different. The, the fish made a different journey after being caught. Um, so when I, I compare this to my own country, and I think we can do similar into the U.S. when I visit your country, is that, that we don't appreciate that that product that much as we do in the Mediterranean. And that was actually the start to create awareness around tin seafood and that you can create like fantastic meals with it in, in no time. Um, it's affordable. It's, it's often sustainable. Yes. It's in almost all of the cases, it's wild fish. Mm-hmm. So where you see around the globe, 52% of the world's seafood consumption is from aquaculture, farm fish. Um, but often they're frozen uh, on the frozen shelf or on, on the fresh counter. In tin seafood, every single product, almost every single product, is out of the wild. And you taste it. It's fantastic. I, I agree with you. I have to tell you, I have been a great fan of tinned fish, I think, from very early on. My mother used to open a tin of smoked oysters, Bart, mm. when friends yeah. would come over when I was growing up. And I was a, a foodie back then, and that was always so special to me. And I still have a, an absolute fondness. I keep smoked oysters in my pantry. And when I pour a cocktail at night, I think it is the most superb starter snack. Yeah. And yeah. I will say, especially now that we're more mindful of our pantries, it is a brilliant go-to. There are lots of wonderful tins of varying wild fish and you talk about in the book in water or in oil and i would love for you to share your opinion um yeah that that uh, yeah you're right and this is often uh, um, a thing where people uh get stuck because they are in front of that shelf and you see like uh fish in in water and fish in water no salt added you see sunflower oil uh, olive oil olive oil right um to preserve fish, to preserve tuna, to preserve sardines, you need to have like liquid on top of the fish, uh, which for the reason the fish won't dry out in the can and you can preserve it better. Um, what I always do when I add oil in a recipe, make it the most easy example. Mayonnaise is based on, on, on oil. Mm-hmm. So in this may- mayonnaise, you have this flavor you would like to add to the fish. So then I would rather choose in water tuna in water because I add oil. For, but the other way around, if I would heat a dish, for example, um, uh, fish and oil will preserve, will, will, will not dry out that quick. So uh, if I would like make a pasta puttanesca or any pasta, which I use fish, and I would heat the product again because the fish is cooking again, I would use in oil to hmm. prevent it from drying out. Bart, I can't let you go. Will you stay with us so that we can talk recipes, please? 
The conversation is, is too good. Live, live from Amsterdam, he is Bart Van Olfen, and the book just released uh, is all abuzz on Amazon and beyond. He is uh, arguably the world's most passionate sustainable fishing advocate and an overall lover of fish. The fish, uh, excuse me, the tinned fish cookbook. Can you tell how excited I am? Is on topic, and there's more with Bart right after this. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with the most sustainable seafood entrepreneur in the world. Yes, he earned that title. Bart Van Olfen is here. His new book release, The Tinned Fish Cookbook. As we talk about how there's so much more to tinned fish than ever before. And so we're going ocean to plate and creating delicious dishes. Um, Bart, we left off talking about oil or water and I'm still reeling because I will tell you very honestly, I have been very responsible in the past for pouring out the oil in my smoked oysters container. And I never thought to make a vinaigrette with it. That's genius. Yeah. Well, the thing is here, tasting is a really important topic, subject. So, um, I mean, you can imagine if you have a sardines in a tin for three four years because that's i mean a a tin of sardines can can last like four or five years without any problem the more the oil is infused with the flavor of the fish so don't use all of it uh a little bit goes a long way yes this this little kick to the dish is amazing yeah you would never get it from any other bottle of oil that's that's true it's in that in that tin there's a little extra secret there hmm. no, no doubt you just shared it with the world and we thank you is that uh, is that a fact uh, when it comes to tin fish that the longer its lifespan in the tin the more the flavors meld or mellow or do they get more pungent I never really thought about looking at an expiration date yeah well it's depending so it's quite a, a, a large topic because you have so many different species into a can uh, doesn't count that much for filleted fish, but if you, for example, have a whole sardine, well, uh, gutted and and the head is off, headed and gutted, but the fish, the bones, the flesh, uh, this all gives this fantastic flavor to the oil, and this is an amazing story. And maybe if you would ask me again, when did the love for tin fish really started? Yes, it was simultaneously when I visited these. Mediterranean countries, but I met a woman in Brittany, in France, and her name is Marie Bevillon. And uh, Marie, she gave me, in a conserverie, which is a factory where they make tins, right? Yes. She gave me that one tin, um, and she gave it really like something fantastically special. Precious. And, 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 and then she said, okay, yes. Bart, you're not allowed to eat this tin the next two years, and promise me, Bart, you turn around this tin every four months. Turn it around, like turn it over, right? Like turn it over. Wow, it's it's like um, filled for ninety percent with liquid with oil. So if you turn it around, the fish won't dry out, but it gets like an equally infused flavor. Uh Um, It will it will cure. A Portuguese 
would never buy a tin of sardines, which is, uh, uh, um, is, is, is only less than a year old, because then oh. it's not... Uh, um, well not, cured. Not, the flavor is not, sure. not improved that much as, as they would like to. So How interesting. There's a speci- there are all special stories behind mm-hmm. the tin of fish, but yes. yeah, the whole fish, sardines, herring, mackerel, they do fantastic in a tin. And that's often also, it's not just that you always buy wild fish, but you buy oily fish. Most of fish in a tin is oily. Yes. Think of sardines, anchovies, herring, yes. mackerel, full of omega-3. It's, it's healthy, it's delicious. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah. D- did you eat the tin two years later? How was it? Because it was a souvenir. It was um, <gasps> like, yeah, uh, a few years ago, and it's still there. Oh, you've never opened it. I've never opened it, oh. and I have many cans with a which I didn't open. One of the reasons is that, and it's maybe like a test or a research. Sure, of course, you want to see. Yeah, because all these factories, they're telling me, we give you five years shelf life, but that's a legal thing. We yes. can, you can keep it 15 years. Forever, right. Open it after 15 years. So that's what I want to do. <laughs> okay, so Bart, you promise you'll come back. Tell us how it is. Yes, okay. I do. Maybe I'll take it with me. If you're allowed to travel, to, to travel again, yeah. I, will, I will take it to your studio. Yeah, we'll, yeah okay. We'll, we'll schedule it. Um, let's yeah, talk yeah. anchovies in a tin, please. Tell us the, oh, the yeah. best things you make, because in the Tin Fish Cookbook, I can't wait to make your cauliflower steak with yeah. mushrooms and anchovy butter. Oh, my. It's well, One thing we should tell all tins, all seafood cans are cooked. Except anchovies. So if you buy tuna, salmon, uh, uh, sardines, yes. mackerel, mackerel. it's best uh, ste- uh, sterilized. It's sterilized. An- uh, ah. uh, uh, anchovies, sorry, anchovies are not. Okay. They are um, cured. Yes. Salt. Salt, right. So it's 300 kilos of anchovies, clean, 30 kilos of salt, six months in a barrel. Then they clean it, they, 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 they tin it together with a bit of oil of oil. They close it. That's the reason that anchovies, you cannot have them longer than six months mm-hmm. in, your, in your pantry because of it's not cooked. But anchovies is umami. Anchovies is, I mean, if you don't eat fish, but you, you, you make sauces all day for your, for your meat or your veggies, one fill of anchovies can make a true difference in any sauce dressing you make. It's, it's, it's the enrich, enrichment, is it an English word? Enrichment yes. number one. I have to agree with you. Anchovy paste, I learned, I will tell you, was that, and in French, the je ne sais quoi, right? The, I, I'm not sure I can put my finger on that umami flavor in a dish, almost like fish sauce in the Asian yeah. tradition. Yeah. 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 But there's something there that is so satisfying, that's craveable, yeah. you want more. I think it's one of the reasons we love a traditional Caesar dressing because the, oh, the tart bite of the lemon and the richness and the umami of the anchovy and then all together in a creamy platform, oh, yeah. I, it's just yeah. so good. It's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, either way, you can use it for your dressings, your sauces as a base for... Smart. For, uh, Super yeah, smart. For, uh, yeah, for anything. And then, of course, the other thing you can use anchovies for is on top of, of toast or mm. your pan con tomate. Ah, I love pan con tomate. Yes. Or on your Caesar salad. Mm, me too. I love that bite. I love the saltiness. All of it's that. It's always good if you have something acidity next to it, mm. some, something acid to it, and then you have this salty uh, anchovies. And mm. many people often think it's too salty. Well, just have it in, 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 in some milk for 30 minutes and you 
you only will taste like this true umami and not oh, get salty smart. Again, uh, anymore. So, yeah. So you soak them in milk 30 minutes, then just rinse them and use them as you would in a recipe. Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Just totally perfect. Yeah. A can of crab. I think crab cakes, yeah. but I don't think you make crab falafel with labne. Yeah. Oh, you can add anything to it. Sure. And, well, that's the thing. With, Smart. When we think of 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 seafood, there is nothing different in terms of species. Um, so it's it's um, you can any create any dish you might think of in, in in seafood with a tin of seafood. Maybe not a bouillabaisse or a bisque, uh, but. Anywhere you would use like a fillet or, or the meat of fish, of course. you can substitute uh, uh, fresh by can. Hmm. And this is one of the examples. Is you enrich the, the, the dish with, with crab next to your chickpeas and, 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 and you can create something amazing. I think most of the recipes in the book have a different angle, are, are, are special, but only because of you would never think of it. Uh, to use tinned seafood. That's true. But if this would be a fresh seafood book, you'd think, oh, yeah, falafel, crap. Oh, of or, course. Or, or maybe what? That's, that's, yeah, but it, what a great combo. Saying? Yeah, no, I, I hear you, and yeah. I understand. I agree. I don't think that we're looking at tinned fish uh, in the right light, and you have brought it to the surface, pun intended. Yeah. I'll tell you the first thing I am making from your book is the tuna summer rolls because I think a can of tuna is so underestimated. And so you use a tin of tuna and some um, lovely fresh vegetables and roasted cashews and you roll it all up in a rice paper wrapper and you make a decadent dip with peanut butter and soy sauce and sesame oil and lime juice, right? And that is the perfect summer roll with a can of tuna. It's genius. It's simple. It's more simple than we think. And canned tuna is the number one sold seafood product in the U.S. So there's not uh, any other product what, what is consumed more than tin tuna. Hmm. But the variety of the recipes we use is so limited. And just when you change your mindset, you can do fantastic things yes. and simple things. And there's n- nothing more simple than making a summer roll. <laughs> and it's True. fresh and healthy. Beautiful. Crunchy, just beautiful. Um, beautiful colors on the plate. Mm. And it's just a tin of tuna with mm. it. Yeah. I love your passion and I love the recipes <laughs> and I, I, I love your platform. I think that you are doing good work and keeping us all eating well, Bart. So kudos to you. The book is entitled The Tinned Fish Cookbook Easy to Make Meals Using Sustainably Canned that are 100% delicious from Tinned Fish. He is Bart Van Olfen, V A N. O-L-P-H-E-N. And you know, uh, as I mentioned, he is arguably the world's most passionate sustainable fishing advocate, named the world's most sustainable seafood entrepreneur, and his first cookbook won the Gourmand World Cookbook Award. So trust me, you want this book and you want to follow his tin fish travels on social at Bart's Fish Tales, T-A-L-E-S, and on his website, bartvanolfin.com. We do have the best culinary thinkers on this show from around the world, and I hope you can hear it. It delights me to share their knowledge with you. Uh, Don't go away. Grab a snack. Come on back. There's so much more fabulous food right after this. Food 
Food is life. Create and savor yours. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. So during the COVID quarantine, did you master bread baking? Do you have a hot loaf coming out of the oven as we speak? Or maybe you need a few more tips and some delicious inspiration. Well, David Leet to the rescue. David makes fast and easy bread at home a lot. And he's here to share his best tips and favorite recipes as featured on his blog. Now, I love LeetsCulinaria.com because it's a one-stop go-to for me of the best recipes that have been combed through and tried and true by David himself, and I trust him. He's a three-time James Beard award-winning food writer, the founder of Leeds Culinaria, and the author of The New Portuguese Table and the very honest and moving real memoir entitled Notes on a Banana. David is an expert on many things as well. His blog has been much adored for its deliciousness since 1999, and I'm very proud to have him as a culinary contributor to this show. He's back to dish. And I'm very glad you are healthy and well and baking, David. Yes, well, I am too, and I'm glad to know that you and your family are well too. Well, thank you kindly. Um, Okay, tell us about your last uh, no-need loaf, uh, because Mm -hmm. I've seen pictures. You know, Mm -hmm. I tried to jump on the bandwagon. I'm a bit busy with the baby, but I think there are a lot of people who are still looking to master bread or embrace bread baking. It's interesting because as we speak, there are two loaves rising in their forms, their baskets, and I will be baking them off tomorrow. And those are sourdough, but on a regular basis, I make a lot of the no-need breads because they're fast, they're easy. There are some that are very fast, some that take about 16 or 18 hours, uh, but they're very, very easy. So I always tell people, if you really want to enter the bread market, if you will, yes. go for one of these fast, easy, um, mm-hmm. high-hydration doughs, because that's the best way to get into baking. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the best place to start. And I wonder, before we get into the recipe, because you're going to share your top two favorites. In fact, one of them, 30 million likes on the website. Very impressive. Uh, Talk about tried and true. What do we need to invest in if we Mm -hmm. want to put out the perfect loaf? At the minimum, for for both of these that we're going to talk about, you need some sort of a uh, cast iron or an enamel Dutch oven or pot. Mm -hmm. A stainless steel is fine, but you need to have something that has a very, very heavy lid that will close on it. And a lot of the ones that I have are kind of dented, so steam will escape. So that's the most expensive thing you'll need. Other than that, it's flour, water, salt, and your hands. And that's really it. Okay, I've got all those things. And then you said that the uh, your dough is in baskets at the moment. Yes. That's an added bonus, right? Yes, that's a bonus. Um, that tends to be when you're doing a uh, like a sourdough. Right. Uh, the the two other ones that we talk about, you don't really need to have that. Good. But for sourdough, especially, there's the forms, and these are made out of wood, and they're coiled wood, and they have a cloth uh, lining, mm-hmm. and that's what they sit in, and then they rise a bit. And I put them in the refrigerator, and you do this actually. The other, both recipes we're going to talk about overnight at least, because therefore you're going to be getting a um, a slower fermentation. So it's going to add more complexity, even though the other two aren't sourdough. 
specifically, you're going to get a better flavor. Yeah, you get so a, lo- a, a loftier loaf as well, right? You get you do. lots yeah, of air bubbles and better crumb and all those good things. Yeah. It's funny, David. Always. I've never been a bread baker. I mean, from culinary school until now, I'd mm-hmm. rather make you dinner from my pantry from nothing and you mm-hmm. bring the bread. And I have felt over this time of isolation that it's really something I I want to master. Like I want one go-to, okay, I can be a culinary hero, as I talk about Mm -hmm. on the radio, and pull out that loaf of bread and say, voila, when we're, you know, uh, sipping wine and just about to put dinner on the table. So you learned from the best. Jim Leahy, no doubt. uh, Yes, and also Zoe Francois. And Zoe, right. Yes. Those are the two that I have learned from. I've, with Jim, he and I have talked many a time uh, on the phone. I've been at his bakery, so we've talked about it. Mm. And also with Zoe. Zoe's actually been at the house, and we've done some filming of some of her pastries, but mm. we've talked at length about the bread and her five-minute uh, no-need bread. Right. So they're both great entry-level breads that really anyone can do. And the wonderful thing about this, you can fold in seeds. You can fold in nuts. Mm. You can fold in raisins. You can do so many with things with this. Sometimes I'll do an olive loaf with gems, and I'll add some zatar, and I'll Ooh. do some crushed garlic, like <gasps> ch- minced garlic. Yes. And I add it in, and it's fantastic. A little mustard seed sometime. Oh, yeah. Um, sometimes people will add turmeric to these. And oh, how nice. And it just makes a beautiful, beautiful yellow loaf and um, you know, poppy seed, lots of stuff. And, of course, you can play with your all of your doughs, too. I mean, all of your flours, rye flowers and your whole wheat flowers and the lo- the two loaves that I have rising right now have got a lot of wheat germ in them because I ran out of uh, rye uh, rye flour in the starter so I just threw a lot of wheat germ and it just adds a different texture and flavor so yeah that's easy, easy. a mouthfeel that, that's really interesting to me super smart that substitution yeah. and you want to let it cool completely I know and Jim always yeah. talked about that it was very important that the texture of the bread was mm-hmm. always better if yes. you didn't slice or tear into it until it was completely cool, which, by the way, that's a very hard thing to do, right? You're, you're staring at this beautiful glory of a warm <laughs> loaf of bread. When it comes out of the oven, the crust is really hard, and you can hear it actually what they call singing because it starts to crackle and it starts to air starts to release from it, which is wonderful. But then it goes through a period where it starts to soften a bit because all that moisture and air is there coming out and then it will harden a bit once it's totally cool it goes it gets a little harder again and that's what you want to so get that nice really wonderful crisp crust you can find david leet's daily dish of deliciousness at leet's culinaria let me spell it for you although you know it you've been there l-e-i-t-e-s C-U-L-I-N-A-R-I-A, LeetsCulinaria.com, as in David Leet. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of informative, entertaining, and delicious conversation. Well, at least I hope you thought so. And I do thank you for tuning in. Let me leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary inspiration for the weekend. You might have seen the internet sensation, but can you really make a quesadilla in your toaster oven? Why, yes, you can. I'll tell you all about it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. For a quick fix craving, you load a tortilla with all your favorite toppings and you, yes, toast away. 
Check it out. I'm posting the recipe now. And I will meet you here next weekend when there is lots more fabulous food in your radio. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and love those around you. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.